Okay, open your Bibles to 1 Kings 11. I'm going to do something I haven't done in a long, long time. I'm going to preach on a part of a verse. And uh, yes, I, I, uh, that is not easy to do. Let me tell you, there's not a lot of material there to work with. But I think there's enough there that we can enjoy uh, this passage together. So look at 1 Kings 11 uh, and then look at verse 2. And the very end of the verse, Solomon clave, cleaved, it means to cling, unto these, and he's talking about the wives, in love. Uh, this past week I ran into one of our former missionaries, and I asked him about his dad. And uh, the reason is, his dad used to be heavily involved in his church, and I should put the, word, the stress on the word heavily. The man basically built his church. Um, he, for more than 20 years, maybe 25 years, his life was about the church. And this man, this missionary's dad, lived to serve the church. And no doubt, uh, he had been taught the truth. He was a deacon in the church. He taught Sunday school classes at various times. And I'm sure for a long time, his behavior was right. But there was a flaw in him, a crack in the stone, if you will, if you will, because he didn't love God. He believed or claimed to believe the truth, and he did what was required, at least for the approval of others. But he didn't love the Lord. This led him to leave his wife and family and begin practicing gross sin. Discipline from the church he was attending by that point, which is an indication that the congregation believed him to be unsaved. And that has not really changed. Now, I know this man. Uh, I don't know him well, but I, but I do know him well enough. A couple of years ago on a Saturday morning, uh, uh, we had some sort of activity going on here. And uh, a large bus drove by the church. Uh, down here at Thomas Brooks Park, they have that, that athletic training center. And uh, I didn't realize that that man was driving one of the buses. Uh, he, he got out of his bus, brought his bus around, parked beside the church, and came out and walked. I saw him walking from a distance. And, uh, and I was standing under that overhang out here with some people, and this man walked up to me. And when he got up close, I realized who it was. And I introduced him to the people that were around, and we stepped aside and talked for just a few minutes. And... And I was just thinking the whole time, um, here he is in the shadow of our church, and there's just absolutely nothing about it that's striking him at all, as far as I could tell. I asked this missionary friend, former missionary friend, I said, uh, so have you spoken to your dad? How's he doing? And he said, I really don't know. I haven't spoken to him in more than nine years um, because of his behavior, the way he treated this man's mom and the family. And I thought to myself, I've spoken to your dad more than you have. And, and here you have an example of a person who, uh, by all intents and purposes, in, in the earlier part of his life, for a long stretch of his life, was living for God, but had a problem, a flaw in him, in that I really believe doesn't love the Lord. And without that discussion about Christian living, the area that gets the most attention is orthodoxy. When you talk about, uh, for example, you're ordaining a young man to be a pastor in a church, uh, other pastors will come 
and will quiz him on his uh, knowledge of the Bible. They'll question him and pepper him with questions on whether or not he knows the Bible. Very few questions are asked on whether or not he loves the Lord. The question is on his beliefs. That's orthodoxy. And it's important that we have right beliefs. If you don't have right beliefs, the entire philosophy of life you have begins to unravel. So it's imperative that you believe the right things. Greek word ortho means straight or right. It's often used as a prefix in scientific and medical terms. Something like the word orthodonture. As believers, what we believe is imperative. And how we live is important. And for that, we have the term orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, what you believe. Orthopraxy, how you live. This is focusing on right behavior or right practice. And often, we'll talk about people from other churches. We'll say they're from another church who has like faith and like practice. That's orthodoxy and orthopraxy. But I think it's imperative to realize that there's another term that's also important. And for me, maybe even paramount to those other two. It's the term orthopathy, orthopathy, ortho, right, pathy or pathos, passions, to have right passions. This term sidesteps the other two beliefs and practices to focus on loving the right things. And I would argue that this is as important to those other concepts because in Christianity, in the end, it's about love. That is, orthopathy is a right love for God that positions one to have a right love for others. How do people know you're a Christian? Jesus said that you love one another. Love is critical to the Christian life. Now, the modern term for orthopathy, we don't use that term very often, and scholars don't often use that term. The modern term is affections. The most important writer on the subject of affections lived a few hundred years ago. Actually, his name is Jonathan Edwards. He wrote a book called Religious Affections. The book is an examination of 1 Peter 1.8, and like many of the writers of his time, he wrote 600 pages basically on part of a verse. Hence my sermon tonight on part of a verse, right? But Edwards' book is written on 1 Peter 1.8, where it talks about, though we have not seen Jesus, we love him and we rejoice in him. And Edwards writes this. Listen to the quote here. He says, true religion in great part consists of holy affections. Basically, the book is a defense of the first great awakening, and it explains how uh, one may determine if his affections are true or false. And if you want an example of false affections, think Pharisees who claimed to love the Lord but did not. Jesus said, with your words, you claim to love God, but with your actions, you deny him. Moreover, Edwards explains the source of godly affections is the beauty of divine things which flow out of God himself. Stop for a moment and think about that. To have right affections comes from seeing God as scripture reveals him to be and to see the beauty that is there and, and then to rejoice in the beauty that you see of God. This is how right affections are obtained, loving what God loves. So Edwards writes again, from, from what has been said, it may be easily understood what I intend when I say that a love 
to divine things for the beauty of their moral excellency is the beginning and spring of all holy affections. That we see God's purity and holiness and we love him. And out of that then forms the affections of our heart toward everything else that's right. And I would even say the rejection of all things that is bad. Another book explains this, doesn't use the same terms, but I think A.W. Tozer's book, The Knowledge of the Holy, it's a short, much shorter book. It explains the true nature of God and exhorts Christians to rise up to this knowledge and live out God's truth in everyday life. The book begins with a classic line. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And it concludes with six disciplines in order to respond rightly to God. Here are Tozer's disciplines. Forsake sin. Commit the whole life to Christ. Reckon yourself to be dead to sin. Repudiate the worthlessness of the world. Meditate on the majesty of God. And grow in your desire to serve others. And within these disciplines, these right things overlap. You have orthodoxy here, you have orthopraxy, but critical to all of it, you have love. In fact, I would argue love is the chief thing. I have right beliefs that result in right practices. I will or will not do them depending on what I love. So Paul can say, even if I have all the spiritual gifts, the very best of them. If I don't have love, then the words I say come out like the symbols just clashing together. It's just noise. If I don't have love, I could even give my body in sacrifice to be burned in some sort of martyrdom. I could be martyred, but without love, it, it profits me nothing. And so I think here what we have in this sense is what you see in the life of Solomon. A man blessed with an incredible kingdom that made him wealthy beyond measure. Remember the Queen of Sheba appears and says, I didn't even know the half of how great your kingdom was. He was blessed with God's wisdom that gave him the ability to react to situations wisely and have the sort of vision for how he should decide what was right. He built the most glorious temple for God that has ever been built. Solomon did that. He wrote portions of the Bible, some of which you memorize, some of which may be even your favorite verse, your life verse. And yet, he did not love God as he should. Rather, he didn't love God as much as he loved the women in his life. So would you consider with me, number one, ungodly things are vying for our affections. God-given desire is morally neutral. I mean, think about this. In fact, look at the word these. Just focus on that word these. He says there at the end of verse five, he claimed to these. There, there's a sense in which some things are morally neutral. The color of socks, right? Brown or blue or green or black, doesn't really matter. The choice of spiciness and salsa. Um, mild, medium, spicy, extra spicy, um, 
make all the people from India cry spicy, right? I mean, it's that spicy. I don't think we have a Mexican spice that says spicy, but you see what I'm saying. And God gives us some liberty in our choices about things, even ones like a spouse. I think we sometimes overthink these things, trying to discern what the will of God is. But I, I'll tell you, this is what I teach my students. Um, there's a grid for determining how to choose something. And here are the questions I want them to ask themselves. Does this spiritually harm myself or others? Okay, think about that. Does this bring injury, spiritual injury to me or to someone else? Okay, if, it's, if it does, I shouldn't do it. Does this advance or hinder the gospel? If it hinders the gospel, I shouldn't do it. Does this lead to sin? Well, if it leads to sin, then it's probably best if I don't do it, even if it's not sin in of itself, if it leads there. I'm not saying it is sin. I'm not going to go that far, but I'm going to say, you know what? I probably shouldn't do that. The wisest thing would be to avoid it. And does this glorify God? Does this actually bring glory to him? And once you've determined that, you pray, you read God's word for guidance, you seek godly counsel, and then you act on what you find. I actually had somebody tell me once, there was a, 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 someone was asking me a question about God's will for this person's life, and, and I did not believe in my heart that it was the right thing for that individual to do. So I said, I, don't, I just don't think it's God's will, and I gave out a bunch of reasons why. It wasn't just a feeling. There were actual reasons why. And, and I said to this person, have you consulted other people or is it just me? Have you sought God's will? And, and the person responded and said, yes, I have. And every single person has responded just like you. <laughs> and I said, oh, wow. Well, what are you going to do? And the individual came back and said, I'm going to do it anyway. Well, I'm going to say that's probably not God's will for you. But, but even with that, most of those things are pretty neutral because once you, once you get through that grid, you say, what do I do then? I, I say, once you've prayed for wisdom and you've sought counsel and, and you've been reading your Bible and all those things, once you've gone through that grid of, is this going to hurt others? Yes or no? Is this going to glorify God? Once you get through all of that, then you act. You actually do it. Even with something like a spouse, because I'm going to say in those areas now, God is leaving a decision to you. He's saying, it's okay. If you do that, that's fine. And that's why I, I struggle a little bit with having the idea of, of, of a perfect will of God. There's theologians wrestle with uh, the idea of an allowable will and this kind of thing. But I, I, I wrestle with that myself because I'm not sure that's what you actually find in Scripture. Like God's letting me do something, but there's something better that isn't sin or unwise. But even with neutral desires, okay? So stop for a moment. All these neutral desires that we have, things that they don't carry within themselves a moral component. They're just neutral. These desires can be corrupted. Because what happens is the natural desires we have, along comes an unnatural, or, a, or a, I'm sorry, the neutral desires we have, along comes a non-neutral desire and attaches itself to it. I'll explain more of what that means in just a moment. But I want you to think about that. The neutral desires are corrupted by non-neutral desires. For example, the desire to be married is neutral. I would even say it's a good thing if you desire to be married. God loves marriage. God created marriage. And loving marriage is what God loves. So that's all good. 
And you, and you say, well, how does that become corrupted? Solomon is my case in point, right? I mean, do we see that and go, yeah, because clearly something's off with this man. Because in his case, his neutral desire was corrupted by a non-neutral desire. That is, the text states he wanted these wives. Literally, he fastened or clinged himself to them. He joined himself together to them. He, he was linked to them. He married them. And this is a problem because he wasn't supposed to do that. See, in an argument about something like this, it usually goes, well, what do you have against marriage? Well, I don't have anything against marriage. I think marriage is good. I think it's great. Solomon, I think marriage is good. So why are you on my case? Well, Solomon, it's not because I, I'm against marriage. I'm against, you know, you marrying the better part of a thousand people. This, this is where I have a problem. And he goes, again, you're against marriage. No, marriage is fine. See, marriage is the neutral part. It's when you bring in the non-neutral part and add it to it, then it becomes corrupted. Does that make sense to you? Do you see that? So this is evident. We know it becomes corrupted when God warns us against that action. You see, he violated God's law against intermarriage with Canaanites. Deuteronomy 7, verse 3. He says, these tribes, these people, do not go into them, do not go out with them, do not intermarry them. Don't let your sons marry their daughters, don't let your daughters marry their sons. Have nothing to do with them on that level. And yet Solomon did it anyway. He violated that law. Secondarily, he violated the law against kings taking many wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17. God is telling through Moses, the time comes and you want a king and you get a king. He says, don't collect a lot of horses, okay? And then kind of uh, kind of cracks me up that right after horses he says, and don't collect a lot of wives. So, you know, I got my horses over here. I got my wives over here. And um, I don't know why you would compare that, but that, anyway, that's there. <laughs> now, let me just stop and say I have these, I have these, Morally neutral desires, okay, I have them, you have them, that can be co corrupted when non-neutral desires are introduced into the mix. So let me give you some examples of this. So here's a, a neutral desire would be exercise. Well, I don't really have the desire to exercise, but if I did have the desire, right, exercise. A non-neutral desire would be exercise that harms my body, okay? And people do have desire to exercise like that. And I think maybe there you go, that would be either at least unwise, probably sinful. A neutral desire would be music, right? Beautiful music, lots of music. A non-neutral desire would be music that is wicked. So if wherever you draw your line on the continuum of music, you know, I imagine most of you at least have some point where you, you go from what you would consider to be acceptable off into the oblivion of, of music. You say, well, okay, all right. Let me give you another neutral desire, a baseball game. It's pretty neutral. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with baseball. It's kind of boring, but if you love baseball, that's fine. But a non-neutral desire would be something like playing a baseball game during church. So do, do you see how that works? Mm -hmm. So I want you to think about a bunch of things that are neutral and ask yourselves, could these things be corrupted? And I'm just going to throw these out, and I have no answer here. But could a haircut, which I consider to be pretty neutral, become, become non-neutral? Something, could something corrupt that? Some of you are shaking your head yes and no. I, 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 did, I don't know. I haven't thought about it long enough. Vacation. 
I guess vacation could become corrupt. Uh, sports, the internet. How about movie going, right? I mean, you, you might have a situation, you say, well, it's neutral, and then, you know, walk one theater over and it's not neutral any longer, right? So, so I think as we look at those things, you say we have these non-neutral, these neutral things that are fine in and of themselves, and, and we argue that they're fine, and I have no problem with saying they're fine. It's when something comes along and latches onto it, and it makes that neutral thing no longer neutral. It has a moral element. So just as something is inherently neutral, okay for us, doesn't mean that it's actually okay for us. Because the neutral desire might be something now that draws my heart away from God. This is what happens with these neutral desires that are now attached to non-neutral desires. It draws the affections away from God. And that's a problem. Because loving ungodly affections is spiritually dangerous. That's point number two. It's dangerous. Things, these things can become the objects of our desire. You see the word love there? Solomon loved these women. That's the Hebrew word ahav. It's a word for love. It's used for a father who loves his son. That's a good love. You know, I think everybody uh, who has a, a good dad or, or you have a son that you love, you, you know what I'm talking about, or a child, a daughter maybe. You, you have that kind of love. That's a good love. That's a godly love. It's used for God loving his people. That's a good love. It's used for a man in the Old Testament who loves his wife. That's a good love. Jacob loved Rachel. It's even used for a man who has a kind of godly love for another man. Jonathan and David had love for each other. Our world have tried to corrupt that into being something that it clearly is not. But that's a godly kind of love. And that's this word love. Solomon loved them. I, I don't I know that he's been let off the hook a little bit by saying these are all political kinds of things. Okay, so Solomon, I you know, he didn't want all the nations around him to invade, so he began marrying uh, these women from these other nations so they wouldn't invade. I'm okay with saying that. I absolutely believe that was true. He did that. He shouldn't have, but he did. But the problem is that he loved them. And you think, well, how could he have loved? All those hundreds of women. I don't have an answer for that. But it says here that he had love for them. And some people say that this love is, is limited to sexual desire. And maybe that's true. Uh, maybe you'd say that's what's here. But, but clearly what he is doing now is he is violating the parameters uh, of covenant life. You see, in covenant life, in Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, Jehovah loved his people. But you go back to chapter 6, one chapter earlier, and, and Jehovah says to his people, you love me. So it's, it's not just obeying the commandments that are all in chapter 5. Chapter 5 is a repeat. It's the second law, the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy. It's the repeat of Exodus 20. 
It gives those laws. You know, starting off with have no other gods before me, the Ten Commandments we call them. Okay? And when you have that repeat now, all of that's great, but God then ends that section in chapter 5 by saying, you know what really I want is I want your heart. Chapter 5 and verse 29. And you get to chapter 6, and what he really is saying about wanting your heart is, I want you to love me with your whole heart, with all that you have. So it isn't like I, I lift my head off my pillow in the morning and I think, okay, I'm going to live my life today by what Scripture requires or, or maybe what it allows. I, had, I was sitting in a lecture this week uh, and a pastor, a, a good young pastor, was trying to explain how he approaches some of these areas. And, and this was his first point. His major point was, you must have submission to Scripture. And I thought, that's great. That's a good first point. But then his, second, his, his uh, first sub-point was in submission to Scripture is, we have things the Scripture requires and then everything else it allows. And I thought, okay, between your first point and your second point is a massive gap. And what's the gap? It's whether or not you love God. That's the gap. If you, if you love him, there are things that the scripture isn't going to talk about at all, but you won't do them because you become convinced in your heart that they're wrong. And so you'll say, because of my affections, I don't want to do those things. And so it's really important to realize that here we have, in this case, Solomon's love for these women, loving them was the corruption. That's the problem. The problem of trying to parse the Christian life out without figuring love into the equation. You know, it's not just about beliefs and behaviors. There are people who claim to be Christian but because of their beliefs and behaviors, but they also love evil things. They've fallen in love with ungodly things. There's an argument going on right now in, in conservative, evangelical, and fundamental world, okay, that world, that would, that, that would include churches like ours, okay, and that, that's a pretty big group of people. I would include lots of people like Southern Baptists and um, Independent Baptists, just lots of groups, lots of schools and seminaries. And they're trying to argue out and figure out how to respond to this stuff about gender and sexuality. That's what they're trying to figure out. How do I, how do we respond to that? And, and while I, I agree sometimes that the scriptures aren't completely uh, saying, thus saith the Lord on some of these things, you just can't say, I... I love the Lord and I'm willing to go along with this. I, I, I'm sorry. I know that people get caught up in some of these sins because of things that have happened to them. Uh, Wesley Hill is a young man who wrote a book called Washed and Waiting. He is a non-practicing Christian homosexual. Is what he calls himself. And... Uh, I read his book. He was abused uh, in his teenage years um, by pornography. Pornography, I believe, is abuse. 
it's abusive. He was abused by pornography in his teenage years. I think oh, that's a lot of probably why he is where he is. I have compassion for him. But my friends, if you describe yourself as a homosexual, you are describing yourself as something God calls an abomination. And there's just, there's just no other way around that. And, and that becomes really contemporary because some of you work for businesses where the pressure is what they call them woke companies. And I'm, again, I'm not talking about the politics here. I don't care about that. I'm talking about the fact that the pressure is coming from the, the heads of these corporations and from the HR departments that you must conform to some of these standards and be okay with it. It's not just that, it's not just that you're willing to go to work and work with people who you disagree with fundamentally on the nature of their gender. It's that you have to some way agree that it's okay when it's not okay. And so people are now searching the scriptures saying, can I find a verse that will let me off the hook? And I'm telling you, even if you could find one that would give you a smidgen of room here, you have to understand that by loving God with your whole heart, you, you, can't, you can't be okay with something that he calls gross sin. And that's why the love of God is so critical to these things. That's why the gap is so large between requires and allows. You see, it's, it's about love. And if you love something God calls evil, friends, you have a spiritual problem. And I would say, you're in violation of loving God with all your heart, mind, and strength. You cannot keep the first commandment and violate the 10th commandment. You cannot do that. Have you ever thought about this? I, I think people don't think about it very carefully. But our culture, our entire economy is built off of violating the 10th commandment. <laughs> right? I mean, you turn on the television... And if you haven't paid to avoid commercials, right? That's kind of how things, television's morphing into kind of internet-based television. But if you haven't paid to avoid commercials, all, all those commercials are, are opportunities for corporations to try to get you to, to buy something you may not need or to desire it. And, and if you desire it, what do we call that? What is it desiring something that God has not provided for you? What do you call that? That's coveting. And, and it may be, it, it may be that um, you can covet your neighbor's house. I guess that doesn't sound too bad. You know, you're, you're living in your house, you look at your neighbor's house, and you go, he has a much nicer house than I do. Now, in my neighborhood, everybody has the same house. So it's, it's uh, you know, I mean, I guess you could covet the houses in the next neighborhood over. Um, um, I kind of covet the layout of my neighbor's house, I guess, but not in a covetous sort of way. You just think it'd be nice, nicer than, than having it the way I have it. I think it's kind of neat. But I'll tell you, you think coveting, well, my neighbor's house, maybe that's not so bad. Coveting is servants. Would that seem evil? I mean, what is the modern equivalent of a servant? I guess that would be like appliances. Would that be true? I mean, appliances kind of replaced being a servant. Um, I'm coveting my neighbor's washer and dryer. I, I'm coveting, um, you know, I don't know. I, people don't have servants living in their homes anymore. I guess you guess you go, oh, that's not so bad. How about this one? Coveting your neighbor's wife. Are there any wives in here who are okay with that? 
Raise your hand, wives. You're okay with your husbands coveting your neighbor's wife. Anybody say, yeah, that's yeah, not so bad. And you understand, when, when, well, the way Paul says it, coveting is tantamount to idolatry. That is, violating the 10th commandment is, is just like violating the first commandment. And in, and in the context of that, he's talking about sexual sin and sexual greed almost, being greedy for sexual things, which just sounds awful. But he says, when you, when you are greedy for sexual things, covetous for them, it's as if, you are violating the first commandment. It's just as wicked. So it's impossible to come away with any other idea but that loving things that are ungodly, if I love them, I myself am allowing corruption into my life. And this is the worst part because these desires turn us away from the Lord. You see, it says he, he clave, cleaved. What's the, what, how would you use that? The King James says clave, but... Clave, claved, claven, cleft, he cleaved. That's such, cleaved is a weird word because it means the opposite, right? I cleave something in half or I cleave them together. So people say leave and cleave with, uh, you know, leaving your mom and dad and, and joining up with your spouse. So I then have a cleaver and I leave my parents and then I cleave my spouse. That just makes, mm -hmm. you know, so cleave's a weird word. Okay, we all understand that. Well, here we have this word cleave. Well, he's saying he loved them so much that he attached themselves to them. And this was the problem because he clinged to them in love. And his desires for corrupt things was inherently corrupt itself. Friends, this destroyed Solomon and it will destroy you. It will. You can say, I have all the doctrines down. I can explain Christology to you. I can talk to you about the mysteries of, of Christology and the doctrine of Christ. And I can, I can go into deep discussion about pneumatology and the Holy Spirit. You can do all of those things. And, and maybe you can say, and I live a pretty pious life. I do these things. I don't do those. But if all of that is true about you and you still do not love the Lord, then you're so wrong. You're so off and you're in danger of turning away from the Lord. He turned from the Lord. You cannot love what God hates and remain in his company. It's not about having false beliefs or practices. It's about loving something God hates. And in our culture, which as it becomes less attached to biblical Christianity, this is more of a problem. Let me give you examples. A drinking culture where now you have Christians saying, well, it's okay to drink, not to get drunk. And there's an imprecise line as to where that is. Okay? Imprecise. And, and I think probably because to be drunk, everybody has a different definition of that. Does that mean staggering drunk? But the drinking culture, the partying culture. By the way, I'm, I'm drawing all of these out of the vice lists of the New Testament. These are just examples from the things that Paul says don't do. The drinking culture, the partying culture, gambling, which is greediness. Okay, so even if you gamble like 50 bucks, man, you know, okay, is that evil wrong? Well, probably not evil. To, you're looking at it as for fun, but the kind of for fun is the greedy part that's kind of you're, you're enjoying. So I would say if you love the Lord, I would say to you, don't do that. Best thing is to avoid it, okay, if, if you can. 
avoid it. I guess if you can's wrong, because you can. <laughs> Nobody's forcing you. Put your money in the slot machine. Sexual sins of all kinds. You can't love what God hates and remain in his company. Flip that around. You can't hate what God loves and remain in his company either. You can't hate moral purity, folks. You cannot hate purity. You cannot hate morals. You just can't. And there are so many Christians who really don't love them. They get turned off and offended by people who talk about purity and morals. You can't hate the church. Jesus died for the church. I actually had a conversation online with a guy two weeks ago where he was trying to explain how it's okay that men don't love the church because in a lot of churches, men don't come to church. It's been a problem now for a few decades. But how can you claim to love God and to hate something he, he loves? You can't hate God's word. Listen, ungodly things, they are all calling for your affections. And having affection for them is spiritually dangerous. So let me just conclude. How can you keep your affections right? Three things. I'm out of time. Let me just give them to you. Enhance your love for God by spending time with him. Evaluate what our culture values and put those things to the test. I gave you the tests earlier in the message. And then prioritize Tozer's disciplines. I gave you six of them earlier. But you must really come to the conclusion that basically says, I love the Lord with all my heart. And if you do that, then you're protecting yourself against the destruction that Solomon faced. Let's pray. Lord, help us to better understand your word, to see here the imperative of loving you with everything we have. Thank you for this story. It's a terrible one in scripture, but it's a story we need in our day. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.